0: Brody Lancaster is the editor and founder of Film for Tales. She has published in Jezebel, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork and many more. And her new book, No Way, Okay, Fine, is a memoir of pop culture, feminism and feelings and was shortlisted for the Ritual Prize for Young Emerging Writers and is currently listed as number five on readings list for top selling books and is featured on iTunes top 10 bestsellers. Welcome Brody. Thanks so much. No Way, Okay, Fine has brought to light for me so many of the common experiences that women have throughout their coming of age, and I'm really excited for younger readers to get their hands on it. What has the focus been for you? Has it been to inspire a new generation of young feminists?
1: I think that's kind of been a bit of a roll-on effect of, obviously it's a memoir, so it's, it's a writing really specifically about myself has in a weird way, made it easier for other people to relate. There were times when I was writing it where I was tempted to speak in like generalisations and be a bit more broad about like women generally or girls generally. But when I scaled back and just honed in on myself, I think that being really specific in that way has made it easier for other people to find the little fragments of my story that speak to them.
0: What was the overall reason that you wrote the book?
1: It sounds bad to say that I was asked to do it. I, th- I talk about it a little bit in the book, but like I deal with like self-doubt and kind of imposter syndrome a lot and so there's a lot of thinking. Maybe subconsciously I wasn't kind of sitting there being like, I could never write a book and I don't have anything to say about anything. But it was very unconscious and it was kind of when the publishers at Hachette approached me with... This idea, because they knew my work and I had submitted some of my past work to the Ritual Prize for Emerging Writers in 2015, they basically took that application and were like, okay, so you were shortlisted and didn't win the prize, but we
0: would like you to write this book anyway. Does that happen often in the Ritual Prize?
1: Well, that was the first year that it ran.
0: Okay, so that's was, right. Yeah, it's, it's only been running for a couple of years. Yeah,
1: so this is the third. Yeah, so that was the first time, and I was kind of like, I was a little bit like, is this how it works? Yeah, is how this how this book work? publishing works? But um, it's not, as far as I know. But I mean, I guess the publishers kind of knew what they wanted, saw something in my application that they really liked, mm-hmm. and they basically went, okay, so refresh this, come back to us with something having gone through this experience of the prize shortlist like come back to us with what you actually would write as a book and that's kind of how it
0: started in the song coconut oil by Lizzo she sings the lyrics if I knew then what I know now I'd give myself a souvenir for old time's sake how do these lyrics resonate with you and your obsession with Lizzo (laughs)
1: <laughs> I am so obsessed with Lizzo and that EP. I've never actually thought deeply about those lyrics. I'm usually too busy, like, dancing to it in the bathroom. Like, Lizzo, that the Coconut Oil EP is my soundtrack to, like, doing face masks and, like, <sighs> being in, like, a steamy bathroom <laughs> just, like, by myself, just, like, jiggling. I just love that record and I love everything about her kind of, like, really kind of fuck you attitude to, like, body positivity and... true. She's just like a hot, cool lady. She's yeah. so she's like so essential, but she's also so like she's not trying to make a big statement. She's just like existing and being and managing to like mean so much in just doing that.
0: Yeah, and her her general sass just gives it oh, all away.
1: Her Instagram presence like is so nourishing. Oh, when I, I haven't followed her. She just posts a lot of pictures of her butt or herself in, like, no clothes, just, like, jiggling. It's amazing.
0: It's gorgeous. Yeah, lots of <laughs>
1: slow-motion twerking of her just, like, big butt.
0: It sounds, it sounds necessary. It's great. <laughs> are there any other things that um, – any other artists that have been inspiring you this year since you've written the book?
1: Yeah, like, one of the hardest things about writing a book that covers, like, pop culture stuff is that that is always changing. And so there are so many things that I discovered – since writing the book that I've been like oh god I wish I could go back and work that in and so like the epilogue to the book and the acknowledgement section were the last things I wrote and so that's where I got to squeeze in like mentioning the movie Arrival which came yeah. out like three or four months after I finished writing the book and the and like
0: I was wondering how you did that.
1: Yeah, and like going I wrote it in like February.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: going you were back like and like squeezing in a <laughs> reference to Kim Kardashian. What happened to Kim Kardashian in October because there's like a big chapter on her. Yeah. And um I finished the book in, like, August, and what happened to her was in October.
0: Um, so you had to you had to go back and cover that. That was necessary.
1: Had to. Um, yeah, but I also, like, have been watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race this year, and I just watched all of Drop Dead Diva, which is all about, like, a thin woman dying and being put back into, like, a slightly chunkier woman's body. They make a big deal about it, but she's, like, not a, you know, fat woman in the grand scheme of things. But,
0: like, that show also
1: I wished I could have written
0: about. I legitimately have a question for you based on Drop Dead Diva. Tell me. I remember at 16 when Drop Dead Diva came out in New Zealand television and seeing a woman that looked like me on television for the first time and just being like, oh, my gosh, Jane, she looks like me. Yeah. I, I felt empowered. Um, oh, but also, how has this never happened before? Yes. Do you and want to know something crazy? What? What?
1: It's either today or tomorrow is the day that Jane and Deb died on the show. It's like the 26th <laughs> or 27th of July. I wrote it in my diary. That is I'm just so realising <laughs> right now.
0: No. Only you would know that. It's amazing. <laughs> but, yeah, it got cancelled yeah. on, on television. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to see a woman that looks like me on television for for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. How important for you is it to see, or for woman to see other women achieving the odds
1: yeah, I mean... On screen and on page. It's essential. It's mm. like, I, I mean, there's... I was reading an article today about um, the lack of ethnic diversity in The Bachelor Australia. Like, it's effectively like a cast of white women. I think there's one, like, woman who's maybe from an Islander background and she's obviously being cast as, like, exotic and mysterious But you look at this cast of women and you see only thin people. And so the idea that, you know, The Bachelor isn't like an example of a perfect society, but it is an example of a society where only one body type is valued. And that is like thin and sometimes curvy, but only curvy in the right ways. You know, if you have a big butt and big thighs and big boobs, like that's fine. But being a fat woman makes you unlovable or uh, automatically kind of like a failure in some way yeah so so kind of media pop culture examples of women who look like that but are like killing it at life or living complex lives or falling in love or being successful in their jobs like that's so important
0: yeah I, I think <coughs> it is too I found I found that Instagram has been really great for that because you get you're getting the sort of marketing for women of of them of themselves mm. and their bodies and how they want them to be shown and they've got that personal control over it on their accounts and you can follow the kind of woman that you want to see. So yeah. your social media is full filled with that. Have have yeah. you got a similar account?
1: Yeah, I mean I follow a lot of um like, a lot of my, my – well, my access to – and my introduction to, like, fat acceptance and body positivity was through, like, fat fashion blogging. Right. Um, and so just the visibility of other women living their lives visibly was, like, an essential turning point in my life. And I still follow a lot of them on Instagram and, you know, I've become friends with women and – Yeah. Um, – from that kind of, like, community and – It's just so important, like, to be able to just, like, see yourself, versions of yourself. Um,
0: And know that you can do what you set out to do. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. It's kind of that you can't be what you can't see. And if you can't see yourself as, like, a valuable member of the world or desirable or successful or any of these other kind of, like, markers of, you know, a happy, healthy person, it's really hard to model yourself after something that doesn't exist.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk to you about, um, you've actually previously stated before that you have no formal writing training. Um, What was your process from high school and then getting into writing for all these amazing publications and then progressing from that into being 27 and having a fantastic book that's been published?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a weird... Uh, I was about to say comedy of errors but it wasn't really it was just like a a strange route to take and I find it tricky when people ask me for like advice or like the how you got there kind of question because it's not something that can be easily modeled or followed I don't think Um, basically I finished high school in Bundaberg in Queensland and immediately moved here to Melbourne I went to RMIT I studied media communications And so part of that degree was like a cinema studies degree. There was a a little bit of theory work around like reading media, so like TV shows and books and music. And as part of the degree, you had to do a certain number of hours of an internship or work experience in the industry that you were studying. So I did a little bit of that at the ABC for this youth program that I had been a part of when I was in high school as like an online producer. And um, a little bit at a company that had just launched, like, a new web culture platform. And so I was a writing intern, effectively, like, what we now would say is, like, making content. But then it was, (laughs) like, you know, it was more like, you are a writer. And so I did that for a little while. The site didn't really have an editor. And so I was, like, noticing spelling mistakes and stuff on the website from other people. And I was like, excuse me, can I please go in and fix these? And so that kind of, like, precociousness, I guess, got me a job. Uh, and so I progressed from being an intern to a part-time assistant editor to a full-time managing editor.
0: Wow. So it really <coughs> was just bit using your initiative and just paving your own way.
1: Yeah. For a really long time, I reduced it to being in the right place at the right time. And I think in retrospect, I have to give myself credit for, like, Absolutely. doing the work. So. When that job went full time, I was basically like, oh, I want to get a better paying job so I can save up and travel around America. I'd never left the country before. And then my bosses were like, well, we have an office in New York. Why don't you just like move over there and work there with us? So like eight months after graduating from RMIT, I was living in New York. Which sounds really yeah. romantic, but it when you, like, not to plug, but when you read the book, you'll find it's not <laughs> all as cracked up to me. It's really hard. So I was there for almost a year and then I came back to Melbourne and by that point I was like, oh, well, this job is over. I guess I'm not writing anymore. And I soon found out that I really had enjoyed that part of the job. Like, I moved into working in, like, an ad agency and I was kind of like, this is not very creatively fulfilling I want to do more editing and I want to do more writing. And so that's when I started Film for Tales, which was a zine about women in film. So I used like a few of my connections and contacts from that job, but also just like other people that I knew and wanted to feature their work. And through Film for Tales, I got like Tavi Gevinson, saw it and liked it and wanted me to write for Rookie. And through Rookie, I think just because it was like quite a big platform and when it launched it had like heaps of readers heaps of contributors some of whom had full-time jobs at other websites and all that kind of stuff so people started to get to know me and who I was and so started approaching me with work and different opportunities and it was one of the first pieces that I ever wrote for Rookie which was about like body image and seeing yourself on screen that caught the attention of uh, a publisher at Hachette who originally like wanted to meet with me and chat about the potential to write a book and that was like a year and a half before I actually submitted to the Ritual Prize. So it was like quite awesome. a roundabout way. By the time I had submitted to the prize, I had been freelancing for about two years and doing stuff for, yeah, like little bits and pieces for like Pitchfork and Rolling Stone and different websites overseas and here in Australia. That had all come kind of from Film Fatals, um, getting my name out there and doing writers' festivals and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so it's been, like, a very weird, yeah, you know, journey. Journey. I was, like, hesitating to use the word journey, but, like, <laughs> it's been a really weird route to take to, like, do a bunch of different stuff.
0: Yeah. But it's, it's been, there's definitely been a lot of work and a lot of writing involved.
1: Yeah. I think sometimes the idea of, like, maybe people who don't know me or my work would think, like, oh, you just, like, wrote a book. But there was, like, so much that went into it before that of, like, figuring out how to be a writer and, like, what that
0: means and... Oh, and getting asked to write a book is the ultimate acknowledgement from your peers.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I think there is, like, a level of kind of you have this idea that you need to have gone to a creative writing class or you need to have studied and workshopped and been in writers' groups and all this kind of stuff that um, that feels like the quote-unquote right way to do it. And so there was a little bit of, like, self-doubt of thinking, like, oh, I didn't go about it the right way. Is this going to be any good... But there is no really like, right? Like, you have an idea and you write it down, and then someone reads it. Like, that's what makes someone a writer.
0: Yeah, it's definitely changed uh, for millennials the way that we approach careers, isn't yeah. it? It's not the typical way with social media and.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't rely the, on like a steady, consistent job for 40 years. Like, no. <laughs> you know, my <laughs> dad just retired after 41 years in one job. His wow. whole life, he had one job. And
0: was he a policeman? Was that mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. I read that in the book. <coughs> <laughs> It's huge. Oh yeah, so your writing and your your lived experiences often paint a picture about growing up in the digital age and you talk about MSN and
1: MySpace. O- MySpace. A lot.
0: Omegle? Oh my Oh, I
1: never used Omegle. Do
0: you did you not?
1: No. I knew what I had heard of it, but I was I was a little resistant to change, which makes me like I guess a weird millennial. I don't know, I went from like <laughs>
0: MSN to MSN Space to MySpace to Facebook, yeah. And you got catfished. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is actually, I mean, it sounds, your experience is particularly interesting, but I, I do know quite a few people who were on the other end. Yeah, um, right. Just in casual conversations, it didn't quite get to the situation that you ended up having. Although now I think about it, I put myself in the situation if my cousin, if my 12-year-old cousin is using the internet and she was using a a chat forum, and if I think about your situation and how this is not a spoiler alert for people who haven't read the book, (laughs) for people who are, you know, chatting online with these people and they go to meet up with them. I mean, in your situation, you, you knew it was kind of shady, yeah, and I feel like I would hope that she had that intuition. Yeah. and I know that I engaged in that kind of chat when I was a little bit older, so maybe I shouldn't be so worried about her doing that. Maybe she should find her own way. Is yeah. there some sort of murky sense as to what you should do as a person with, with another young person using the Internet in that way? Yeah. I just yeah, it's just an, it's an interesting point. Yeah, to think about. I think
1: I mean I think the thing is it's like every situation is really different. I don't think it's easy to say like never meet someone from the internet or always trust people on the internet. You know, like it's you can't speak in generalizations about it. That particular situation was that I was in was very much like I saw it as one thing, which was like a friendship with someone who was like a little bit older and lived in a different state. And then it steadily progressed to something that was kind of, like, out of con- out of my control, at least. Yeah. But something that I kind of went along with because I was, like, had never experienced that kind of, like, you know, dramatic kind of passion where someone, like, you know, texts you all night and is crazy about you on paper – and so that was the thing that I think I was attached to rather than, like, the idea of...
0: It was romanticised because yeah. it's written down and that's all you have to go off. You can reread and reread these sort of, you know, paragraphs yeah. sent to you. Um, yeah.
1: It's like as if someone, you know, ten, or, if it was 10 or 15 years earlier, it's like if it were a letter in the mail... Exactly. It would have been so romantic. Yeah. And it was, really. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Until it kind of went a bit nuts.
0: Yeah, do you have copies of those conversations?
1: <laughs> yes. So that was the first chapter in the book that I wrote. Yeah. It took me two days to write it. I, after day one, I thought it was a failure and I would never write this book. And then I watched You've Got Mail and I was like, oh, wait, I just need to like connect the dots. And like yeah. this is
0: a movie about this kind of thing. Um, I was wondering if you were going to use extracts of that, that then I guess... Legally. Yeah. From <laughs> the catfish could arise from the sea and yeah, find you. Yeah, I mean, he's
1: still around. I s- wow. We don't, we're we not in contact, but his MySpace profile still exists. Wow. Yeah.
0: Do people still use MySpace? I guess so.
1: I don't. <laughs> but I guess so. Anyway, like, it was – yeah, so the I started writing it because I was – and I was sitting on my couch and I had a folder or, like, a notebook and I write – I just try to describe it in the book – but it's basically I, at one point, printed out all of our messages and tried to write, find, like, the lyrics to songs that he'd sent me and and try to, like, get copies of, like, text messages. And I basically made a scrapbook of our Love. Courtship, courtship, I guess, including things that I had written. Like, yeah. I got my version of it as well and I kind of pasted it. it was This is when I was, like, 16 or 17. Yeah. I pasted it in. Anytime I could find dates, I wrote the dates down. So I kind of have this timeline, yeah. and it's still in my house. Like, I'm 27 years old. I live alone. Like, I've lived alone yeah. for two years. I pay my own rent. I'm, like, a fully-fledged adult, but I Love h- I'm holding on to this thing that is, like, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it now. It's cringy, and it's kind of embarrassing to look at and be like, oh, God, this is it, so is it cringy. Yeah. But it's also, like... It's your lived experience. You know, I listen to, like, a lot of emo music, and I, you know, mm. watch The Notebook a bunch, and, like... It just felt so beautifully, like Reliving.
0: tragic. Yeah, I um, confess I have a, a clear file of Robert Pattinson um, cutouts from when he was in Twilight. Oh, I love that that I still, still have, it? and it's honestly it's about fifty pages full. So I love that. Um, yeah, and I I was connected to him on <laughs> his YouTube video as well. You talk a lot about in the book about you know coming to terms with loving what you love and loving it without fear. Mm-hmm. How, what was that process like for you? Is it just a coming-of-age thing? Because I'm not sure that I think I'm probably ready to admit that some of my, quote, guilty pleasures. Is mm. that a maturity thing?
1: Yeah. I don't know if it was a, an age thing because I I thought that the world had kind of progressed from thinking that, like... Pop music, bad. Rock music, good. Mm. But then I wrote this article for The Guardian that came out yesterday and there was still a lot of, you know, someone called me a teeny bopper for caring that Tina Arena made a cameo on stage at Splendour. And I was like, excuse me, what? Uh, teeny boppers like Tina Arena. Like, no offence, but it's 2017. No yeah. teenagers are super into Tina Arena. Anyway, but people being like, why didn't you review King Gizzard because they're the band that is really important here and so it's this kind of idea of, like, what is valuable and what isn't valuable. And the more I thought about it, the more I realised that, like, the things that were valuable or the things that weren't valuable were really informed by a real deep misogyny. They, they, The things that we culturally reject or label guilty pleasures or say that we hate watch or hate consume are things about women or about poor people or about young people or made By or for young women or women of all ages or queer people, like there's a that's the common thread that links everything whether it's like Kylie Minogue or One Direction or Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, it's like you know, these pieces of pop culture that are not made for, by and about white dudes in their 30s are shameful, you know nobody hate listens to Led Zeppelin nobody like hate watches The Wire, you know, mm-hmm. it's, and that's not, you know, maybe The Wire is a bad example. Nobody hate watches like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or something, you know. So true. It's, yeah, it's like that's, I was trying to put my finger on it as I was writing the book and I'm, that's the that's the thing that I've come to is that, that that's the common thread,
0: yeah. That's how you came to your realisation. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, this is kind of in retrospect. I've kind of realised that in the last couple of years and,
0: yeah hindsight is a great thing yeah so what's next for you well uh i'm not gonna
1: write another book for the time being because i just basically wrote my whole life in this one but i'm gonna write a horror movie
0: script wow
1: i keep saying it in all my interviews so that i kind of hold myself nice. to it otherwise i would just not do it
0: i'll ring you up in three months and ask your house guys thank you <laughs> Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me in studio Brodie Lancaster in the Sin Studios. Um, you can check out um, brodielancaster.com, her website, for more details to get your very own copy of the book. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.